0: I don't know if it's just me or if there's anyone else in here, but my pants are a lot tighter this Sunday than they were last Sunday, Uh, noticeably so. Um, It was really, it's so fun, um, you know, getting to dedicate uh, our youngest boy up here. Uh, We've gotten to dedicate all of our kids up here, um, and so, well, not up here, but at this church, and um, it's just been a privilege to be a part of this church And to see him getting older and older, um, you know, he's seven months old now. Um, Last last service, I said eight months, but I was wrong. Um, And so, uh, you know, it's a dad thing. can't always keep track. Um, But one of the things I do remember uh, very vividly was finding out about uh, our youngest, Ezra, uh, that he was going to be born into this world because... He was what uh, we call a surprise baby. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was actually an interesting story. I, after church, uh, it was a Sunday after church, I got home, I had some food, I uh, was about to relax, and I went into the bathroom, and I walked in, and sitting on the toilet was this little stick, and I picked it up and looked at it, and my wife, I had no idea, she was even feeling anything. Um, she had just picked this thing up on the way home from church, and uh, she had not even looked at it yet. Uh, she had gone to the bathroom, gone somewhere else, and then I walked into the bathroom, and I pick up the stick, and I was the first person to know. This is the first time with all of our kids. I was the first person to know, uh, and he was a, a bit of a surprise, and we were just super excited about it. Um, but the reason I tell you that story is because the, the, what we're talking about today is another father who's even more surprised than I was to know that there would be a baby coming. Um, today we are going to be talking about Joseph. We're starting a new series for Advent on the characters of Christmas. And so each week we're going to take a different look at um, one of the characters in this Christmas story. So you know, the shepherds and angels, uh, Mary, Joseph, um, the the wise men, and, and we're going to take a look at them. And the goal is not simply to learn about these characters in the Christian story. Like, yes, we will learn about these characters, but, but really the goal is to see Jesus better through studying these people, through studying their story and how they play a part in this incarnation and in this Jesus coming to earth. We want to know Jesus better through these. So none of these like, I'm not preaching about Joseph this morning. Last night, I, I was talking with my wife about this sermon. She said, sounds kind of like a, a sermon on Jesus. And I was like, yes, that's it. That's, that's what it should be, is a sermon. It's about Jesus still. Yeah, we're taking a look uh, through Joseph's perspective. And so we're just going to crack it open this morning in Matthew 1. That's where we're going to be most of the morning. Matthew 1 in verse 18 is where we're going to start. Before we do, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, would you just reveal yourself to us this morning? Would you help us to know you more deeply and to love you more at the end of this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So we're immediately introduced, just thrown right into the story, immediately introduced to Joseph and Mary. We we don't really know a ton about Joseph. Um, We know that he was a carpenter. Um, We know... You know he was in the line of David. We we know a few things about him, but but really there's not much said about him in Scripture. He's kind of this overlooked character a lot of times, even in in, in the in the Christmas story, right? As we sing these Christmas carols, we sing things like Silent Night, where it's round young Virgin Mother and Child, and like we don't say and Joseph, right? He's kind of like the bystander, but he's more than just a bystander. He he uh, has a very important part to play in this story, and he is set to marry this woman, Joseph, or not Joseph, this woman, Mary. And Mary is probably about 14 years old. That's about the age that girls 2,000 years ago were betrothed, where they were engaged to be wed, right, which sounds crazy nowadays. Uh, I don't know if anyone's 14 in here, but right there. Yeah, that's wild. (laughs) That's too young. Um, But she is betrothed to be married. Now, we don't use that word betrothed very often, um, but a betrothal is, is kind of like uh, an engagement, but a little more serious. It's like a step up from an engagement. And so, you know, nowadays, a man would find a woman that he falls in love with, and he would, you know, date her for a few years, and then get engaged, and then, you know, then, all, and then they would get married after a few more years or a few more months, however it works, right? But for this, it was parents who met up, and they said, our kids are getting married, and so it was arranged marriages most of the time. Um, and they would say, okay, your son's marrying my daughter. They're, that's good. They're betrothed. And so there would be these even documents that they would sign. It was this legal binding agreement. Okay, our kids are going to get married. Now, they weren't technically married yet, but in order to break up a betrothal, you it, it was a, still a serious matter. You still had to get a divorce in order to break a, a betrothal. You know, nowadays, to break an engagement, you just... You know text him and say, "Sorry, it's off, right but back then it was it was much more serious. You had to present papers it was it was a serious divorce and so Joseph, he's ready to get married to this girl, Mary, and he finds out that she's pregnant. Now the Bible doesn't tell us how he finds out she's pregnant. I don't know if Mary came to him and tried to explain what happened I don't know if you know, he just noticed that she was starting to show a little, and he was like, that's not good. Uh, but we do know that Joseph is like, that's not mine. That, you know, it's impossible. Not my child. And so the Bible says that he was faithful to the law, and he didn't want to disgrace her publicly. He didn't want to heap on this disgrace. Really, there was kind of two options. Uh, that, that you could go down in this kind of situation back then, 2,000 years ago. Uh, and both were not good for Mary. The first would be that the husband wants to heap on the disgrace, that he wants to expose her publicly, that he wants to make a, a mockery of her, right? And it was such a serious offense, actually, in Deuteronomy 22. You could be put to, to death for doing this, for, for having, getting pregnant when you're betrothed to someone else. That was, that was punishable by death. Now, that normally wouldn't happen, um, especially with Rome in being in power. But it was a very, very serious thing. And so Joseph, he doesn't want to heap on the disgrace. He, he wants to do this thing quietly. Um, you know, he's a good guy. And um, either way, though, she's going to be disgraced. Let's be honest. At some point, she's going to have the baby. There's no guy around. And people are going to find out. And, and for a Jewish woman 2,000 years ago to have a baby outside of a wedlock it was practically a death sentence. I mean, you, you were on your own. You were ostracized. Everyone looked down on you. You know, there, you would never find another person to marry. Uh, you know, you would just be an outcast. So Joseph finds out she's pregnant. He knows it's not going to be good for her, but he knows also it's not his. We continue in verse 20... All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's interesting. Almost every time an angel appears throughout Scripture, the first thing they say is, Fear not, or don't be afraid. Right? Because when an angel shows up, usually people are shaking in their boots. They're just, you know, peeing their pants. This, like, this is so great. This is so beyond me. I, like, woe is me. This thing, you know, just so fearful. Well, what's interesting here is the angel doesn't say, don't fear me or fear not, period. He says, don't be afraid to do something. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now, why would he be afraid to take Mary as his wife? Well, if he decided to take Mary as his wife, that means the disgrace that she was going to face, that, 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 that ostracization, I don't know how to say that word, that she would face, all, all that guilt, that shame that she would face, that would be on him too now. He would be participating in it. Everyone would look at him and think, you're the one who did this. I mean, they could try to explain it away, People probably aren't going to buy it, right? Uh, You know, they could get married really quick, but people are going to do the math. People do the math nowadays, right? Married in June, baby in December. That doesn't add up too good, right? So um, this is is what he tells them. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what other people are going to think about you. Don't be afraid of how you're going to be ostracized, how you're going to be cast out. This is God. This is God. God, the Holy Spirit has put this baby there. This is God coming to you. And he gives two names, two titles to this baby. This angel gives two titles to the baby. The first one uh, is Jesus. He tells him to call him Jesus. And the second is Emmanuel, as as this scripture is quoted um, from the Old Testament. And so I want to take a look at both of these names and what they reveal to us about who Jesus is. We're going to do it backwards. We're going to take Emmanuel first. And Emmanuel, which the the scripture tells us, means God with us. And so what what is being said here is that this baby, this tiny little baby, is going to be God. Uh, Like, for us to hear that, it's not so big of a deal, but for someone two thousand years ago in a Jewish culture to hear that God was going to not only take the form of a human being but take the form of a baby would have been the most wild thing that they could have heard this would you know other societies uh, would would think, okay yeah, God could come down and, and you know the the Greek gods, for example, they would always come down and they they weren't holy right they were just like more advanced humans. They, they messed up. They, screw, they screwed up too, right? But God, the holy God of Israel, for him to take the form of a human was absolutely mind-boggling. And over and over throughout Scripture, actually, Jesus affirms this, that he is God. We see this in John 8 when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he, what he's doing there is he's quoting the Old Testament where God reveals... He, to Moses, who he is, he says, I am. And Jesus says, I am. And then the Pharisees want to kill him. The people want to kill him because they're, they're realizing what he's saying. He's saying he's God. We need to kill this guy. Right? We see it in Mark 2. He heal, heals a paralytic man, and he tells him that his sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are so upset because no one can forgive sins except for God. That's why he's actually killed at the end of the day is because these claims that he is God. And the claims that he is God are some of the, the, the greatest arguments, actually, for the, Jesus being who he said he was, who he said he was, right? It's one of the greatest arguments because there's almost no one who denies that Jesus existed, Almost, I mean, all historians will agree Jesus was a man who existed 2,000 years ago, right? There's more evidence for that than any human ever in existence. There's more evidence that Jesus was alive than anyone ever, right? So we know that he was a man, but most people nowadays will write Jesus off by saying, oh, he was a good teacher. Yeah, sure. He, you know, he had a lot of followers, but he wasn't God. You know, he, he was a good guy. He was a good teacher, but not God. But for, for him to say he was God, he's taking that option off the table. C.S. Lewis talks about this, and he says, you can't really say that he's just a good teacher, right? He could be three things. He could be crazy, a crazy person who thinks he's God. He could be a liar who's trying to convince everyone he's God. Or he could be who he said he was. But he can't just be a good teacher. Like, that's not one of the options for someone who says that they are God. And what I find fascinating about Jesus is that he convinced the people who were closest to him that he was God. Could you imagine what it would take to convince your mom that you're God? It would, I mean, apart from an angel showing up and telling your mom that you're God, there's nothing that's going to convince her, right? Or your siblings or your best friends. How are you going to convince the people you're closest to that you're God? Yet all the people closest to Jesus thought he was God because he was who he said he was. Not only is he God, but he's God with us. He wants to be with us. This is the whole point of Christmas, that God, as John 1 says, God put on flesh and blood, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus was God in a body. He came to be with us. Philippians 2 says it like this, that he, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. See, it's possible to know about God and to not know him, to be with him in this close, intimate way. Um, You know, Jared loves the Suns. I love the Suns, but not even half as much as Jared loves the Suns. And he knows a ton about Devin Booker, right? He knows how tall Devin Booker is. He knows where Devin Booker went to college and probably middle school and elementary school. Like he knows everything about Devin Booker. But Jared doesn't personally know Devin Booker. As much as he would love that, like if he walked up to Devin Booker, uh, he would have no idea who Jared is. Some of us are the same way with God, where we we know all these things about him. You know, we can sing songs about him. We could quote scripture about him. But have we been with him? He's a God who desires to be with us. In Spanish, um, there's two words to describe to know. Uh, I don't know if anyone's good with Spanish in here. I was a Spanish minor. Um, But there's two words, saber and conocer, To know. And saber is to know something, like to know information. And so you can saber something, but conocer is to know someone. Like you, pers- you know that person. You know, and I think the problem with some of us is we saber God. Like we know all the things about him, but we don't know him intimately. We haven't spent time with him. And he desires to be with us. And so uh, he's given this name, God with us. Emmanuel, but then he's also told by the angel to name this baby Jesus, to name him Jesus. I think it's interesting. Joseph doesn't get to name Jesus, right? The angel tells him what this baby's name already is, right? So normally a parent gets to name their kids. You, you bring them into the world, you name that kid. But this, this baby's different. This baby already has a name. His name is Jesus. So you're going to call him by the name that he already has. I think so many of us would love to be able to name Jesus in a sense, to give him his identity. That's what naming someone 2,000 years ago was all about. You're giving them this identity in their name. This is who they would become, this is who they are, right? We would love to name Jesus. Like, all right, Jesus is all about making me more successful, and Jesus is all about getting me. Uh, more money. And, and you know what? Jesus, uh, he already agrees with everything I believe. Like that's, the G- that's my Jesus, right? I get to name Jesus. But the truth is Jesus is the one who gets to give us our identity, not the other way around. We don't get to name him. Neither does Joseph. Um, Jesus, the, the, the name Jesus is actually the Greek version of the name Joshua, which means God saves, Yahweh saves. That's what it even tells us in this verse that Jesus uh, is called this because he will save his people. It's funny, um, our, our five-year-old, he started praying at dinner every now and then when we asked him to pray, and he started saying this thing. Uh, he said it once, and uh, th- th- now he said it over and over. Every prayer, he starts off this way now. He says, God, thank you that you are the Savior, and we were like, that is so cute that he, like, where did he even, I didn't teach him this word. Like, good job, Selah and the children's ministry here. Like, you guys <laughs> taught him this, you know, like, such theologically rich. And and then I realized, like, wait, does he even know what Savior means? And so I, I had to explain, like, what does it mean to be saved from something? And, you know, we see this the this slogan almost, so Jesus saves, Jesus saves. You can see it on billboards and things like that. And it's so true. Jesus saves. But what does he save from? This verse tells us that he, to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He doesn't simply save us so that we can have a better life. He doesn't simply save us to make us more happy. He saves us from our sins. Then that begs the question, what is sin? I think one of the best... Uh, descriptions I've heard of sin is missing the mark. It's an archery term that, you know, you're shooting at a target and you're not hitting the target. You're missing the mark that God has set out for you. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has this sin, that there's no one righteous. Romans 5.12 says that as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death came to all people because all sinned. We all have this problem of sin. We're all in this rebellion against, who, against God, the God of the universe. There's this, uh, back in 1910, there was an article in the Times, in the, in the paper, where they sent out a question to a bunch of writers and thinkers to answer and, and send back into the paper. And the question was this. Uh, what's wrong with the world? And so all the writers and thinkers had to come up with an answer to what is wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton, um, the theologian, was one of the people that was selected to do this. And he wrote in famously, and he said this, Dear sirs, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I am. See, the problem is not just out there. It's not that everyone else, the problem is in here. It's in here in my heart. It's we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That's who we are. You might have heard it described like this that there's this like god-shaped hole inside of us that we're always trying to fill with all these different things, with success or money or fame, whatever it is. You know, media or to- whatever it could be. We're trying to fill this thing inside of us and it just never seems to satisfy. We can live our whole lives just trying to numb and, and to not feel this God whole within us. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, that what we've earned, our payment for this, this rebellion is death. And not just death at the end of our lives. We're all going to die, right? But, the, but this eternal death, this eternal separation from God, help. But the, the second half of the, this verse is the good news. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You've probably heard this verse before if you've been around church at all. I think the problem with verses that are so familiar to us is that it can lull us to sleep. This should change everything for us. That there's a free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've heard this before, maybe. I I used to work in Tucson with a bunch of kids that went to a private Christian school, and they had heard this message over and over, and it was almost as if they were, like, inoculated to this message. Like, they just heard it so many times, and, and it just didn't mean anything anymore. And it was like trying to wake someone up, like, this should change everything for us. When I was uh, at that church, the first camp I took these kids to uh, was a youth camp in California. Now, the first day we got there, we'd go into this leader lounge, and uh, the camp kind of gives all the leaders, like, the down low on what's going to go on, and they say, hey, you can come hang out in the leader lounge if you need to. There's coffee here. There's sunscreen here. You know, if you just need a little break, come out, come over here, grab what you need. And I'm like, great, that's awesome. I definitely am going to need some coffee. Um, so later that day, I go in there, I grab some coffee, um, and I start, I'm, I'm not feeling great. Um, next day, I wake up, I have this horrible headache. I'm like, okay, I definitely need some more coffee. Maybe it wasn't very strong, and I go in there, just keep drinking coffee all week. And I'm, I'm thinking, gosh, I'm sick. Like, something's wrong with me. At the end of the week, one of the, the leaders of the camp let it slip. And it was actually decaf coffee that they were serving us all week. I've never felt so betrayed <laughs> in my life. It was, I mean, because decaf coffee is hot bean water. I mean, it is just like something to warm your hands with. It, it tastes a little bit like, you know, it, it looks like coffee, it tastes like coffee, but it has none of the real power of coffee, right? I think in the American church, we've decaffeinated Jesus, We've taken out all the things that are you know, difficult and we, that we don't like, and we've, in a sense, taken out the power. We can't, you can't come into the presence of Jesus and leave the same way, not the real Jesus, not the Jesus that, that Scripture talks about. There's two men, after Jesus dies and is resurrected, that are on this road to Emmaus, and they're talking about what just happened with Jesus and how he died. And There's a third man who shows up. We know this that it's Jesus that shows up, but these two men don't recognize him immediately. And so they talk with this man on the road. They open the Bible together. um, They they talk about Scripture. They get to this place, and they break bread together. And when they break bread together, all of a sudden they realize, wait a second, this is Jesus. This is the Jesus who died on the... Like, this is him. He's back. And they have this line in there that they they say, like, we should have known. Didn't you feel your, our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road? Like something within us came alive when we were with him. When we're with the real Jesus, you can't leave the same way you came. Something comes alive when we have an encounter with the real Jesus. G.K. Chesterton also says this, that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's a difficult thing to follow Jesus. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Uh, That's a thing of torture. And he tells us to to go and follow him. This is a difficult thing. and I think oftentimes in my life, I've left Jesus untried. I've left, uh, and he wants all of me. He doesn't want little pieces here and there. He wants my whole life, all of me. It's interesting what Joseph does. At the end of this story in Matthew, it says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. When Jesus comes into our lives, it's never going to be the same. Right? Joseph is completely changed. He was planning on divorcing Mary. He was planning on getting out of there as fast as he could. And now all of a sudden, he's taking her as his wife. He's obeying what God has called him to do. Right? Suddenly, it doesn't matter that all the shame is going to be heaped on him. It doesn't matter. It's going to make life harder. Right? He's going to obey God. He probably doesn't know all that it's going to entail to do this right? But he's taking the step that he's called to. He's being obedient in what God is calling him to do. Um, when we had our, our first kid, Judah, that, it changes everything. Like, I, I remember seeing him in the first time in the hospital, and then one of the things I really remember is, you know, after being at the hospital for two days, it was discharge time, they hand you the baby, and you're thinking, like, I'm not ready. For, like, please, you do it. I don't know what I'm doing here. And we get down to the, to the bottom, and I pull the car up. And I get the baby, and I'm trying to get him in the car seat. And I, can't, I cannot figure it out. And I kid you not, it takes a, a more than 20 minutes to figure out how to get this baby. And I'm putting the baby in the car seat, and I'm trying to pull straps. And I, I'm, I'm a, I did engineering in college. I should be able to figure this out. And I'm getting so upset. There's a guy behind me smoking. Like at the entrance to the hospital. And so Sarah's freaking out, like, our baby's gonna get smoke in his lungs and who knows what's gonna, you know? And so I'm like watching YouTube videos while I'm trying to do this thing. And I realized two things in that moment that first off, I had no idea that like what was coming. But the second thing I realized was that life was never gonna be the same. When a baby comes into your life, like, your life is never the same. A baby changes everything. It's true for Joseph, but this baby that came into Joseph's life didn't just change his life. It it changes all of our lives as well. I think Christmas, it deserves a response. For 33 years, the world had Emmanuel, God with us, and yet we can still have Emmanuel. We can still have God with us. The Bible promises that those who knock will find, or or the door will be opened, that those who seek will find, that those who ask will receive. And so I would beg you this morning to ask and knock and seek. See what you find. God wants to be with us. What happens when we take a little time to be with him? When we see what he, he has, if we would spend time in his presence. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you want to be with us. That you would even come to rescue us is beyond our ability to comprehend that the God who created everything became a baby and died for us on a cross so that we could be made right is the greatest gift we could ever be given. But I just pray that we would experience Emmanuel this Christmas season, that we would experience what it is to be with you, that we would see that you are the one who saves, that we would put our faith in that alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen.